Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. <laughs> and I'm Erica. And today I'm going to be telling you guys about the disappearance of David Glenn Lewis. Uh, today I am giggling because Erica and I have tried this three times. So we're keeping this one. Um, but I am drinking, I think, some Javalia coffee, which is honestly, I think, the best like cheap store-bought one. I recommend trying it. I actually have nothing because my day has been incredibly chaotic and I just haven't had time to get a drink and I think you needed some I was gonna say if I did point. it'd probably be some shots so <laughs> Abby well we're glad you guys are here and grab your drink your coffee your shots your whatevs and let's dive in We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. This is a case suggestion by Kalista S. So thank you, Kalista. David Glenn Lewis was born on December 11th, 1953 in Borger, Texas to his mom and dad, William and Esther. In 1975, he graduated from Texas Tech University with a political science degree. And from there, he went on to obtain a doctoral law degree from the same university, and he graduated from there in 1979 with that degree. So, pretty smart guy, pretty focused in the law area, the law field. A few years after graduating, he met a woman named Karen Garrett, and they married in 1982. They had a child together in 1983, and it was a daughter that they named Lauren. For several years, David practiced law. He eventually was elected as a court of law judge in Moore County, Texas. He ended up serving as the judge there for his four years from 1986 to 1990, but he lost his bid for re-election. And so, and I don't know exactly the reasoning behind that, I'll be honest. So he went back to practicing law just normally in Amarillo, Texas. His friends described him as a kind person who really enjoyed helping others. He was known to be really active in a lot of charitable organizations with donations and just serving and time but he was also really involved in his local church once again with serving and giving his time as if that wasn't enough for david being a father a husband a part of like an active part of his church an active part of some charitable organizations and doing his actual job practicing law he also taught a government class at a college in amarillo texas so we're talking about a really busy guy on thursday january 28th of 1993 David was working at the Buckner, Laura, and Swindle Law Office, and he decided he wasn't feeling great, and that's what he told everybody else that was there, and so he's like, I'm going to go home. And so he headed home from work. It's not believed that he went directly home, not sure exactly where he went, but there was a charge on his credit card at a gas station that afternoon, so at the very least, he went from work to a gas station. He then also still had class that evening that ended at 10 p.m. And so he still did go to the college and teach that class. 
So for whatever reason, he left work because he wasn't feeling well, but he must have started to feel better later on and was able to teach these classes or maybe he was just playing pokey and really didn't want to work. Kind of unrelated, but related. Nighttime classes are the worst. Those are my least favorite in college. I can't imagine having to be a professor until 10 o'clock and also working like a day job. That, yeah. I actually would rather nighttime classes, believe it or not. Surprise, we have different uh, sleep schedules. For those of you that don't know, I am a major night owl, but I also just finished my master's degree. And so I worked during the day and then I, in the evening, would have my master's classes. And those were all like eight to nine, nine to 10. I think I had 10 to 11 as well, a couple times. And I was like, yep, this is, this is ideal. This is the time of night that I would like to have my classes. So on January 29th, then the next day, Karen and her daughter, Lauren, also David's daughter, who was about nine years old at the time, decided that they were going to go to Dallas to do some shopping for the weekend. And David was like, okay, that's really fine. He was planning on staying at home. And the Dallas Cowboys game was going to be playing for the Super Bowl that weekend. So he was going to be staying there and watching the Super Bowl. And so that was already the plan. So when Karen and Lauren were getting ready to go, they don't see David, but they didn't think it was that concerning they figured he could be out somewhere or whatever you know but they left and then everything seemed normal I guess Karen and David didn't communicate at all over the weekend which I thought sounded slightly odd for some reason but on Sunday January 31st Karen and Lauren got home really late and when they got there David wasn't home Karen still said she wasn't concerned because she figured you know he was probably at a friend's house watching the game because that's what it would have been playing. And she said that there were two freshly made turkey sandwiches in the fridge. His wedding ring was on the kitchen counter. His watch was on the kitchen counter and the dryer was on. So Lauren was like, somebody had to have been here like recently. There were also lights and TV on. The VCR was recording the football game. Like there was just a lot of stuff that made it seem as though David had really been there that weekend. So she's like, he's either with friends watching the Super Bowl or maybe he ended up getting called into work for some last minute thing. He ran in there and he'll be back home later. The next day, she finds out that David misses two appointments and she's like, this is abnormal. Something's wrong. And so she gets worried and notifies the police that he is missing. So early on into the investigation, they're obviously trying to figure out what's going on. Where's David? When was he last seen? Did he get in an accident? Like, what's going on? So when they're looking around, they find that somebody had used David's name to purchase two plane tickets before he went missing. The one ticket was bought on January 31st, and it was going from Dallas to Amarillo. And the second ticket was purchased the next day and was going from L.A. to Dallas. Nobody knew why David would have bought these tickets. His wife thought it was weird. Everybody in his life thought it was weird. But... The other thing is, this was 1993, so this was before September 11th, 2001, obviously, but before 9-11. And so the process of getting on a plane was completely different. He, to buy the plane tickets, you didn't have to show your ID. Like, that wasn't a part of the process. You just said your name, basically. So there was no actual proof that David was the one to purchase for those two tickets. What's weird to me, you said it was from Dallas to Amarillo, and then from... What was the second one? L.A. to Dallas. Los Angeles to Dallas. Yeah, like that's a that's kind of a weird. It's weird that it's not in the same place. It doesn't make sense why the second one is going from like, did 
he's was he planning on buying a ticket from Amarillo to Los Angeles at some point? So I wonder, do they know if his ID was missing or his wallet or anything? Not not initially, no. Yeah, that's odd. Like I said, we're able to confirm that he was actually the one to purchase him. There wouldn't have been cameras. There, I mean, it would have just been like word of mouth, like who purchased his ticket. And if you're working in an airport, you're probably seeing hundreds of people today. Are you going to remember that somebody came in under this name of David Lewis and purchased these specific tickets? Probably not. I have a question, though. Can they really like assume that it's him and not just another person with the same name, though? I'm going to assume that they could for some reason. Because they, they were pretty sure that it was him. That it was okay. at least his name. And I don't know if it was date of birth as well. Like, I don't know if they used all the things. But from everything I read, it was pretty confident that it the tickets belonged to him technically. Whether or not he purchased them or somebody stole his identity. But I don't think that they ever thought that there was, it was an accidental David Lewis. Yeah. So, while they're investigating all this, they kind of start putting some of the pieces together. And they learn that on January 29th, so this was the day that Karen and Lauren left to go to Dallas, they learn that David was seen in the Southwest Airline Terminal at the airport by a friend from church. They said that David seemed to be frantically rushing through the airport, but he didn't have any luggage on him, which seemed suspicious. So that was noted, but... The next day, on January 30th, David's Red Ford Explorer was seen parked outside of a courthouse. And there was also a deputy sheriff that saw somebody matching David's description taking pictures of David's vehicle. So it's pretty positive that David was there on January 30th. Later on, on January 30th, or the 31st, it was either the 30th or 31st, the neighbors of David said that they saw his vehicle at his house, parked in the driveway. So at some point, he did go back to his house on the 30th or 31st. Yeah. Well, it would make sense if you're, if we're thinking, you know, he at least was doing laundry and had the dryer on. That's what's sticking with me because it wouldn't have been on that long. So somebody turned it on. You are not wrong. Somebody would have turned the dryer on. And obviously... Yeah, obviously most dryers are going to shut off automatically. I don't know if maybe there was a random dryer that just dried for hours. I have no idea. Maybe it was a really old dryer. It does seem like a fire hazard, but I don't know. So another thing that they discover from January 30th, and this one I think is like one of the weirder... I mean, this whole thing is odd, obviously. When detectives are investigating the whole thing, they determine that on January 30th, there was a $5,000 deposit made into the family's bank account, which is equivalent to about $10,523 nowadays. But it wasn't able to be determined who exactly made the deposit. Once again, there were a lot less security measures back then than what we see now. So they just know that a deposit was made into that bank account, but they don't know where the money came from and they don't know who put it there. A couple days kind of go past and on February 2nd, 1993, they actually find David's Ford Explorer parked outside by the courthouse again. So when they find the car, they start looking through it and they find his keys under the floor mat. They find his driver's license, his credit cards, and his checkbook. So as of right now, the only thing that's missing is David. 
Karen also looks through the house to see if anything specific is missing from the house. And the only thing that she said that she thought was missing was a pair of green sweatpants that her husband owned. But that was the only thing that she noted was missing. While they're doing their investigation, there's also a cab driver that comes forward and says, you know, on February 1st, I I actually had a ride that I picked up and the guy really resembled David. And I drove him to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And he said that the cab driver said that when the guy got in, he paid in cash with a wad of $100 bills. And then he also seemed really nervous and like flaky, flighty, I guess would maybe be a better word. He's going to the airport. I didn't even mean to make that joke, but (laughs) you're welcome, guys. A lot of suspicious things. It almost sounds like to me, like maybe David knew something or was in some type of trouble or was trying to disappear for some reason. And, you know, I'm just thinking about his work that he did maybe it had something to do absolutely. with absolutely and now that was something that was discussed quite frequently so his family was like he wouldn't have left voluntarily he was probably abducted or murdered or something seriously terrible went wrong so his wife karen said that over the years they had received multiple death threats with david working as a judge and you know in his career which is Unfortunately, it comes with the territory, not saying that it's absolutely right at all, but it's not to be to not be expected. You know, they had still been receiving death threats up until the point that he vanished. But she also was like, you know, there were things coming up that he wouldn't want to miss. Our daughter's birthday was coming up. There's all these things that he'd want to be there for. And so going with the fact that they thought maybe work was somehow involved, David was a defendant in a conflict of interest lawsuit that had been brought against him and several of their attorneys. He was the last person who needed to be deposed before he vanished, which is suspicious. So Mm -hmm. all of the paperwork that he had relating to this case disappeared when he disappeared, which is also really suspicious. Did they follow up with the people who were involved? Because I think to my knowledge, they kind of followed up on stuff as much as they could. This happened in 1993 and they worked on this case for a good amount of time. They did try to get his wife, Karen, to take a polygraph test, which from everything I've kind of said and from what I've looked into, she did seem slightly suspicious, I thought. I thought, which we can talk about more in a second. I thought she seemed slightly suspicious, and so did investigators, and they tried to get her to take a polygraph test, and she refused. Yeah, and like the random spontaneous trip to Dallas for the weekend, and she's like, I didn't hear from him at all, waiting to, you know, tell police and contact police. I could see where the suspicion would be raised, absolutely. There is there is some suspicion. I have to just say that, just from everything that I've presented. At the end of all of this investigation... Detectives and investigators determined that David probably left on his own free will and they're not actually concerned. So I'm going to say that after following up, I'm going to I'm going to assume that they followed up with everybody involved in that lawsuit. I'm going to say they did their due diligence because I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. After they followed up with everything, they're like, I think he just left on his own. We don't have any evidence of foul play, not specifically, no true evidence. And so in 2002, they actually ended up closing his case. I'm going to tell you guys about a different case really quick for a second. So on the night of February 1st, 1993, there were some cars driving up and down the State Route 24 in Moxie, Washington. And 
while they were driving up and down, they there were some reports of a man who was wearing military boots and military clothing. And that's all he had was he just had his clothing on. Or so they were driving and saw him walking. And one of the drivers was like, I'm a little concerned. So they turned around to go back and like warn other people like, hey, there's somebody on the side of the road. Just like be careful. They were going to check on the guy. But by the time they turned around and got back to the guy, the guy was actually dead. And it appeared that he had been hit by a vehicle. And so it was classified as a hit and run. There was a report of a Chevy Camaro seen driving away, but nobody knows who drove the vehicle. They weren't able to identify them or see them. It's not for certain that that vehicle was responsible for the hitting of the man, but it was at least in the area and acting slightly suspicious. They did conduct an autopsy report and determined that this individual had died of injuries consistent of being struck with a vehicle. There were no drugs. There was no alcohol. Talk screen. Everything came back. And this individual didn't have an ID. And so they classified him as a John Doe, which, in case you didn't know, is one of Abby's interests. She's really into the Jane and John Doe's. And so for years, this man is just completely unidentified until a patrol detective named Pat Ditter was reading the newspaper And he was reading a series that was called Without a Trace. And it was in February 2003 that he was reading this series. And he was like, this one case just like kind of sticks out to me. So I'm going to kind of just like look into it. So he starts doing a whole bunch of research and starts looking for any missing man that would match the description of this John Doe. And through his research, he finds the David Glenn Lewis case. And he's like, this guy looks a lot like our John Doe that we had here. But the difference was the David wore glasses and the John Doe did not have glasses on. But he does a little bit more investigating and determines that in one of the pockets of the pants that he was wearing was a pair of glasses. I was going to say also, it wouldn't be that bizarre if like his glasses flew off when he got hit and they just didn't find them too. Correct. Absolutely. But... The glasses that were in the pocket looked identical to the pair that David wore. So Pat was like, we're going to figure this out. So this whole search started in February of 2003. In 2004, a DNA test was done where a sample of the John Doe was compared to a DNA sample of David's mother. And it was a match. So the Moxie John Doe was officially David Glenn Lewis. Okay. That doesn't answer a lot of questions, though. Exactly. And that's what everything I read was saying was like, one question answered opened up another door of a hundred other questions. One. Was he in the military? No. Question number one. (laughs) Question number two. How did he get 1,600 miles away? Question number three. Why wasn't he wearing his glasses? Why were they just hanging out in his pocket? He couldn't see. Four, why was he just walking down the road in the middle of the night? Valid question. Yeah. Five, why did he just leave his family and not say anything? Did he have like a history of mental illness or anything? Like maybe he just had some like episode. Nope. There was no history of mental illness. There was nothing. Karen, his wife and his friends and family were like, he was not suicidal. He never seemed to have any sort of mental illness. Like we never had any concern for anything like this. And they didn't have a reason for why he would have left home. That's all the information I have for you. And I know that sounds so unfortunate because I wish there was so much more. But as of right now, all we know is that on the happier side, we solved a John Doe case, right? A John Doe case was discovered and and solved. Namoxie John Doe was officially given a name. But it's still 
leads to so many other questions. And, and the main one is really like, what ultimately happened to David? We know he was involved in a hit and run. Did he leave home on purpose because he wanted to get away from people? Like he wanted to leave that life. Did he leave home because he was trying to protect his family from something related to his job? And so he thought if he left, it'd be safe. Was he kidnapped and he was in the process of running away when he got hit by the car? The car that hit him, was that the person that kidnapped him and they just ended up hitting him to silence it? Like there's all kinds of questions. Yeah. To me, it kind of seems like one of two things. One, he had some type of like, like mental break and just for one reason or another, thought there were people after him and kind of acted a little bit out of the ordinary because of that. Or maybe there was like um, a mix of like threat and like a forced abduction where, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the papers were missing as well, the evidence or whatever from the trial he was going to be a part of. That seems too sketchy, especially since his vehicle was just like left with all the stuff in it. It's like they were trying to buy tickets to make it more confusing and dropped them off somewhere so that everyone would be like, what's going on? Which obviously if that's what happened, it worked. I mean, everybody had questions about where he was and what had happened to him. And still to this day, I mean, it's 30 years after his disappearance and we still have a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, we know that he is deceased, unfortunately. We know that he died very quickly after he had disappeared and honestly there's not much more that we know other than that so if you guys want to let us know your thoughts about what happened to david if you have any information regarding the case you can contact i would assume i didn't find a really a contact actually but i'm sure you can contact the local amarillo texas police department would be my best guess and give them any sort of information if you know what had happened if you were a witness that night if you saw that camaro if you were driving that Camaro and you want to call yourself in, I mean, there's a, a lot of different options here. But if you guys want to let us know what you think happened, and if you also have any thoughts, comments, we would love to hear it. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>